Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Greg Kokel. He is, uh, he, he, we're going to talk about his new book, Street Smarts. And the subtitle is Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. Uh, Greg Kokel holds an MA, MA degrees with honors in both apologetics and philosophy. He has spoken on more than 80 university campuses and hosted his own call-in radio talk show for more than 33 years, defending, quote, Christianity we're thinking about. Greg is the founder and president of Stand to Reason. Uh, I was, remember, if you remember, I was part of that Stand to Reason tour, I think, last two years ago. I can't remember when that was. Last year, partly last year, where we went to six different cities and, and talked to teenagers and uh, preteens and teenagers and maybe college students. I can't remember. But um, anyway, it was an amazing time. It was an apologetics conference. And... Um, he serves as a adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at Biola University, and he's the author of uh, the book "The Story of Reality" and the best-selling book "Tactics." Um, and so, I'm excited to have Greg Hochul on the show to talk about street smarts. But first, a word from our sponsor. But look around you, your family, your faith, they're not in the way, they are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up, it's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung hero of her king and country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Welcome, Greg. Hey, good to talk to you. Becca. So good to see you. It's, it's been, been a while. while. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Since we were on the Stand to Reason tour together. That's right. Uh, and, our, that was... and our minds are perfectly in sync here. You could say we're saying the same words at the same time. So <laughs> the Vulcan mind meld. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm excited today to talk about your brilliantly written book, Street Smarts. Hmm. The subtitle is Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. Right. And uh, I got to say, when I was reading this, Greg, I was like, how is Greg so smart? <laughs> it's so, it's, it's just brilliant. Like the conversations you. you have with people uh-huh. are so good. Um, so we're going to get into some of that. But let's start with this. In the beginning of the book, um, you say we need to revise our thinking about witnessing and revamp our approach to evangelism. That's what right. What do you mean by that? I, I, uh, which you just asked our first Columbo tactic question, which is great, clarifying. What do you mean by that? And uh, we actually have a received tradition, Beckett. Everybody who's a Christian is familiar with this received tradition. You um, probably simply put, you share the simple gospel answer some questions, but um, try to encourage a person to receive Christ. This would be on an individual basis. This could be at a church service where the gospel is shared, and there's an invitation to come forward or raise your hand or something like that. And uh, the point is to get the message out in a simple form and then to close the deal, all right? And if you're using a little booklet, there's the close the deal 
sample prayer at the right. end. Right. Now, I'm not against those things. And in fact, I've I've used them myself in the past, especially a long time in the past, a long time ago. I became a Christian almost 50 years ago during the Jesus movement and uh, had long hair and the whole deal. You know, those were the days, right? Yeah. <laughs> right back at, yes. So, um, uh, and and things were different back then. It was relatively easy to communicate the the things about Christ that were important to know because people understood the language and they understood the worldview. And even if they didn't agree with it, at least they understood what you're getting at. And so there was understanding in the process of communicating. Yeah. But if you look at the uh, parable of the sower that Jesus uh, spoke about in the Matthew version, it says something interesting that I hadn't seen uh I read it, but I hadn't really registered. And Jesus said that first soil, and many are familiar with the four types of soil. The first was the hard one, and the last one was the one who actually received the word and and was fruitful right. regarding it. But the the soil, the the word, the seed bounced off the hard soil. But when Jesus explained this to his disciples, he said that that, that those are the people who hear the word and do not understand it, and then the devil comes and takes it away. And I realized. You know, in the last 20 years, and even in the last 10 or even five years, the environment has changed so radically that people really have very little understanding of what we're talking about when we try to talk about um, our convictions about Jesus of Nazareth and sin and salvation and forgiveness and all of that. And so um, when I started looking at the New Testament, I observed something interesting. There were no altar calls in the New Testament. There was nobody being challenged to receive Christ um, as Lord and Savior. You know, this is the language that we use. And I, I realized that what was going on there was, if you think about the process of sowing and reaping, or as I call it, gardening and harvesting, right. um, the harvest really almost took care of itself. When the gardening had been done adequately in people's lives, they they believed the Holy Spirit obviously was working, but they didn't respond with belief by being poked at by another Christian. Do you want to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior or something like that? Now, again, I'm not against that, but the reason I mention it now is there's a lot of people who, who are Christians who are not comfortable with that approach. And uh, and especially in our culture now, that sounds like fighting words, you know? And so they're just going to stay back and stay on the bench because they think that's the only way to do it. What they don't realize is this way that we've received of doing evangelism is maybe 150 years old. For 18 centuries, the church didn't do that because it wasn't done that way in the early church in the New Testament, okay? Instead, there were occasions of communicating aspects of the truth, sometimes the bad news, not the good news, just to get people prepared for the good news. Jesus did that a lot. And 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 then when the harvest was ready, pretty much fell from the tree. When I think about my own conversion, uh, September 28, 1973, my younger brother who had been gardening in my life came to talk to me again about Christ. And I said, look, Mark, you don't need to tell me any more about Jesus. I'm <clears throat> I'm ready to become a Christian. I want to become a Christian. So I kind of harvested myself. And I think, as I recall, in your own testimony, did did you? Did, I think you had a rather dramatic experience in a church yeah. setting, but I don't. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall that it was part of an altar call circumstance, or maybe it right. was. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was just a, a road to Damascus kind of moment. Yes, it was yeah. a road to Damascus in terms of the dramatic element, but it was not. A, and that's a little unusual. But it's not unusual that you came to trust in Christ in a moment on your own and not well, it was by really by hearing the preaching of the word that's what yes happened. of course that's what happened it was like that is what when the holy spirit came in is when i heard the, the gospel preached right yeah yeah and so also you didn't god was be... god was already and family members were already uh gardening in my you know gardening in my yes. heart so yes. I was on the day that I went to that service, I was already prepared for the, the harvest. Uh, right, right. And so this is what I'm encouraging people to do. It's what I meant by that line. If we just think in terms of um, got to, um, you know, hit a home run or something like that, we've got to swing for the fences, we've got to close the deal. And this is the what we're, our goal in a conversation 
one of two things is going to happen. Uh, one, we may go for the gold, so to speak, and push too hard and bruise the fruit. Well, maybe three. Maybe somebody will respond. Okay, that's a possibility. It does occasionally. Secondly, though, we might bruise the fruit. Thirdly, third thing that might happen is nothing. In other words, if that's what's expected of us, we're not going to even try. So we sit on the bench. And this is why I develop, there's a whole chapter about gardening versus harvesting. And I want people to understand that that is not the only way that the, the gospel gets communicated, uh, that, the, that, that the Holy Spirit works to bring people into the kingdom. And in fact, when you, you, you and when I think of my friends, uh, you know, some of them had, like, I had a spiritual birthday. But still, I was the one who was ready and, you know, the fruit dropped in the basket. Others don't even have a spiritual birthday. They don't remember when they became a Christian. They just weren't then and they are now. And C.S. Lewis even says in his own uh, autobiographical writings, he said, you know, he got in a sidecar of a motorcycle with his brother, Warney, and headed for the zoo. And when he left, he wasn't a Christian. And when they, he got back, he was. So this is a trusting in the Holy Spirit to do the sovereign work that only God can do. And we just worry about our part, and that is a little bit here, a little bit there, taking the opportunities that are presented to us. And that's what the material in the book Street Smarts allows them to do. It, it walks them through, the readers, a game plan that allows them to garden. It gives them gardening tools, even to the point of being able to parry challenges to their convictions and uh, to answer objections or difficult circumstances that come up as a barrier to somebody thinking about Christ. Yeah, and we'll get into a, a few of those examples in a minute. We'll be right back after this short break. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Um, so you mentioned Columbo and you talk about that in tactics, your other book tactics, right? Talk about what are the three, the three steps of the Columbo uh, tactic. Okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, somebody most, well, I don't know how old your, your viewers are listeners, but if they're young, they don't get this one, but if they're old enough, they're going to get Columbo. You and I were, I just watched. Right? So, yeah. I just watched the entire series uh, on, on uh, Amazon or whatever it was. Wherever I, it is. I yeah. love Columbo. Yeah. Right. Well, Columbo is an interesting character. He's a police detective, actually the most recognizable TV, TV icon of all time. He even beat out Lucy. Lucy was oh, number two. Oh, amazed me. Anyway, he's a detective that kind of comes in to the crime scene uh, very low key, under the wire, scratching his head with his cigar, rumpled trench coat, doesn't lo look like he knows what he's doing, right? He's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox because he has a routine. He's He's got a method. And so he comes in under the under the um, radar, so to speak, very non-assuming, very unthreatening, and he begins to ask questions, right? I don't know. Something about this thing bothers me. You know, <laughs> do you mind if I ask you a question? And so, uh, and and this becomes the key to his navigating the entire crime scene and, and the whole criminal investigation until the answers to the question, he figures some things out. And then he asks questions that are actually much more 
um, first our general getting information. Then he asks questions that are really going to the heart of the concern, but not in a way that those who he's asking get it. Right. And you know the series, the murderer is always known from the beginning of that any particular episode, and he's in the crowd, and he's around the husband, the, the employer, or whatever. And so Columbo, once he starts is suspecting, then he's going to ask questions that really set the other person up, draw the information out so he can nail the bad guy at the end. Boom, there it is. And there's a certain sense that this pat, what I offer is, is, is very similar. It's not nail the bad guy, of course, because we're not talking to bad guys. We're just talking to people. But we're trying to persuade them of something that maybe they're not that interested in being persuaded of. And so using the Columbo tactic is what I call it um, in three steps will allow a even in many cases, a completely untutored Christian, untutored theologically, untutored uh, philosophically or apologetics, defending the faith to actually make some good headway, do some good gardening. And the first step is just very simple. Whenever I find myself in a circumstance where I, I think I might make a spiritual difference in their life of some sort, maybe I always want to gather information. It's the first thing I do. That's all. Uh, I don't I don't know about them. I don't know about their circumstances. I don't know about their convictions. And especially if they're challenging me already, and I know that they're not a Christian, but they're challenging me, I always want to ask questions. I want to ask clarification questions. And the model question is the one that you actually started with. Um, well-trained there, Beckett. <laughs> what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. And uh, what that question does is it uh, pushes the ball in the other person's court for one. They make a statement for you to you. You ask, well, um, okay, I'm a little confused. What are you getting at? What do you mean by that? What's uh, what, what, what's this all about? Tell me more. Okay. So you're inviting them to say more about their view or their challenge to your view. Mm-hmm. Now that might make some Christians uncomfortable, but actually the fact is that's really good for two reasons. First of all, as a as the Christian in this circumstance, I want to make sure I accurately understand their view, uh-huh. okay? uh, because I can't I can't critique their view or offer some thoughts con- counter to it unless I understand it. But I also want them to understand their view, and uh, I'm sure in your conversations with other people, people will fire things out that they've heard others say. They've been socialized to push back in a very certain way, and when you ask them. Well, what do you mean by that particular thing? Oh, you're a bigot. What's a bigot? You know, for example. Yeah. Well, well, you, that's what, you know. But if you force them to define that word or then you're, it may, tr- or whatever their concern happens to be, it, they have to think more carefully about what they mean. And a lot of times the wind goes right out of their sails when they're asked for clarification. It's crazy, but it happens a lot, okay? So I want them to understand their view as well. Okay, so that's the first step. You gather more information. Now with the intel that you get, and you're gonna be using that question all through the conversation with any ambiguity that comes up. I mean, I'm not sure about that thing. Tell me about that. Oh, okay, that kind of thing. The next step is what I call reversing the burden of proof. And all that is, is if you think about it, the first question you're trying to figure out what a person believes contrary to your own view Mm -hmm. next one is why do they believe that (laughs) now that's the question they ask us all the time right but a lot of times they haven't thought of it themselves and so don't be surprised if you ask them what they believe or why they believe it and you get what i call okay 60s alert here uh this one you'll be familiar with too um a simon and garfunkel moment right you know, those guys who uh, they're really old, yeah. but they're still alive. Uh, 1966, they wrote the song, The Sounds of Silence, right? So yeah. song, a lot of their work, fabulous. Anyway, um, I digress. The point is people aren't going to know what to respond. They're coming after you and you're just saying, well, help me understand what is it that you believe? Help me understand why you think that's the case. Okay. So a person will say, well, the Bible's been changed. I mean, just to give a quick example. Yeah. What do you mean it's been changed? Okay. So I want them to explain it. Maybe they think there's textual corruption from the beginning until now, but I don't know if they can even explain that. They just heard people say the Bible's unchanged. So what do you mean? And then they maybe they can explain about the textual corruption with the copying and recopying. Okay, great. 
Now, next question, this will help me out. Why do you think it got corrupted that way? Now I understand what you think happened. Why do you think that's what happened? And now I'm looking for their reasons. Yeah. And uh, all I'm doing at this stage is I'm in the shallow end of the pool, ankle deep. I'm just gathering information. Now, I haven't given my own view here at all. I haven't made my case at all. But I'm just going to tell you, Beckett, it's in amazing how much progress you will make getting someone to think by just asking them what their view is and why they believe it. By the way, that happens in reverse all the time, doesn't it? The Christians yeah. out there who engage people, they know when they're asked about their views and why they believe it, how they get stumped. And it causes doubt to arise in their heart, right? Yeah. This works both ways. And I, there's one other detail I had I left out that my goal here is not to close the deal. My goal is to just to get them thinking. And the way I refer to that in both books, The Tactics and Street Smarts, which is an extension of tra tactics. So those of your listeners who have read Tactics, this is tactics number three on steroids, just so they know, where I really expand it. But yeah. what I say is I'm trying to put a stone in people's shoe. All yeah. right. I, just, I love that expression. That's a great yeah. expression. I just want to annoy them in a, in a good way, you know, and get them thinking. And if I could ask a few questions that get them thinking about their own view, maybe plant a seed of doubt, possibly, or maybe get them thinking in a positive way about something on my side, that's good. I'm I'm happy camper. I don't need somebody to, to repent and become a Christian right that moment. You know, this doesn't happen hardly ever in a split second on a person's life. They don't go from sprinting that way to sprinting the other way. You know, there's a yeah. slowing down process, a consideration. These con these uh, conversations using that, those first two steps, gathering information about what they believe and then gathering information about why they believe it. Very easy for the beginners and can make progress, but now it sets them up for the third step. And the third step is a little more complicated because now you're going to use questions to make a point. And specifically in the street smarts uh, approach, it's to help them see that their that their own view is has problems with it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's completely false, or to help you parry a challenge that somebody might offer. All right, so you, you're you're uh, exploiting or exposing a weakness or a flaw in the other person's view, and um, and you're 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 parrying this challenge in a way to get them to think, but you're always using questions to do so. And so to employ the third step, you need something that I didn't go into much detail in, in the first book. I just explained what it was, but in this book, what you, the thing you need is, first of all, you need to know what's wrong with the opposing view. And yeah. so I have, I have uh, chapters on, on atheism, I have one on problem of evil. I have one on the Bible and challenges to the Bible. I have two chapters on Jesus and his claims. I have uh, two chapters on abortion. I have a chapter on a gender, marriage, and sex. And so uh, all of those kinds of things that are hot topics that Christians get hit on, mm -hmm. they have to be able to see where the mistake is in the other person's thinking in those areas against Christianity. Okay, so that's the first step. If you don't see the mistake, you can't expose the mistake. Okay, then the next thing that you need is is a is a series of steps that will allow you to reason to the conclusion that their their point of view is is a mis their challenge is misplaced or their point of view is wrong. Okay, and this is true in any kind of discourse. You know, we whatever we're doing, we say here's here's let me explain it to you, and we say first, then first, second, then third, then fourth, boom. But you have to have something like that in your mind regarding the challenge. Okay. And third, you need the questions. Remember, this is a tactical approach using the Colombo tactic. You need the questions to ask to make it a dialogue, not a monologue, that actually leads that person effectively down through those steps. And that's what Street Smarts provides. That's what it gives in every one of these circumstances. All kinds of the ideas, here's what's wrong. Here are the problems with atheism. And here are some model questions to start the conversation. And then I give you a kind of a ramp up into a conversation with responses so that the reader can get an idea of how this works and have a couple of handy questions available to get into a friendly conversation with somebody else. Okay, good. And let's, so let's, let's give an illustration in the book. 
it's great because in each chapter you give uh, these illustrations of of dialogues uh, between you and and whatever a non-believer, right? Or and so, can you give us an example of what you just said in terms of either relativism or atheism or the problem of evil? Like, can you just give us an example of what that conversation sure uh, may look okay, like? Yeah. I will. And but first, I have to give you the backstory so you make sense of where I'm going with the conversation. So okay. let's just take the problem of evil. All right. Now, in the chapter on evil here, just so people know, I don't try to solve the problem. How can there be a God that's good and powerful if there is evil in the world? I actually address that in a different book called The Story of Reality. OK, and if they want to buy that, they can. Uh, what I'm offering in this is a is a tactical maneuver. OK. That's based on the idea that the problem of evil is not a Christian problem. It is not a theist's problem. It is a human problem. Mm -hmm. It applies to every human being because everybody knows, no matter where they lived or when they lived, something's wrong with the world. The world's broken. And therefore, if you adopt a worldview, and it's going to be a sound worldview, in other words, it captures the world as it actually is, you're going to have to be able to address that issue. Okay. Now, it turns out that Christianity can address the issue. And to give a thumbnail sketch, evil is part of our story. In yeah. fact, the problem of evil is why we have a story. It starts in chapter three. It's at the beginning of our story. Right. It belongs in our story. Our story makes no sense without it. And our story is not over yet. It gets answered 66 books later is when it's finally resolved. But of course, the understanding of the story explaining about evil is that the evil is a result of evil people. And yeah. so it, what the story, what, what the story, and I keep talking about the story, but this, I mean, the true story of reality, how it explains evil is it tells you how it began with human beings and that to solve the big problem, the influence on the whole world of evil, you got to solve the source, which is individual humans who are guilty who then can be forgiven of the guilt and then be repaired through their life. So there's less evil in the world. And ultimately, there's going to be a final solution. So it's a great answer. All right. But yeah. um, that's the story of reality, that book where I go into those details, but there's a thumbnail sketch. Um, however, um, what I want to focus in on is to use the problem of evil as a leverage against atheists and atheism in particular, Yeah, because um, the I have two chapters on atheism, and then I transition into the problem of evil. And the title of the third chapter is Evil, Atheism's Fatal Flaw. Right. It turns out that evil is not a problem for Christians in the way people think it is. Evil is a problem for atheists. So here's how I here, – now here's the dialogue. Now we know the backstory. So I would say uh, – so the atheist raises the problem. Well, usually the first question I ask is what is the problem? Well, what about the problem of evil? What about it? Uh, well, that's a problem for you. What is the problem? I want them to spell it out. Okay. And there are different ways of characterizing it. I say, therefore, God doesn't exist because if he was powerful, he'd be able to get rid of it. If he was good, he'd want to, but they're still evil. So he's either not powerful and not good or doesn't exist. And the atheists are opting for the third option, right? Okay. So, all right, I get it. Okay. But I want to ask you a question, Mr. Atheist. Um, let's just say you're right. Let's just say God doesn't exist, all right? All those things that you just identified as being evil, do they still happen? Oh, yeah, of course they do. Are they still evil? Yeah, of course they do. That's why I'm complaining about them. Okay, great. Now, there's no God in the picture here. You're an atheist. Can you explain to me how you account for the problem of real evil in the world? In the world. Notice that line indicates they're talking about objective evil, not just things they don't like. Right. That is the complaint, evil in the world. Okay, now now hear what we got when I asked the question, dead air. Because I promise you, almost no atheist you're going to talk to has ever thought about that. They think, well, God doesn't exist. Okay, now what? Uh, I, no, that the Christians are wrong. Okay, great. But you haven't gotten away from the problem. The problem is still there. You tell me how you make sense of objective evil in the world when it's just molecules clashing in the universe. Now, the answer is they can't do that. What they can do is maybe appeal to Darwinian evolution that causes us to believe in morality in order to get our genes successfully into the next generation, maybe. 
and I deal with that concern in the book. But uh, uh, the, the, the problem is, the biggest problem there is all that can produce is relativistic morality, morality inside right. of us that we falsely believe because we've been tricked by evolution. Um, biology can't make rape wrong, to put it most simply, all right? But everybody thinks rape is actually wrong. Evolution can't explain that. If you end up going the evolutionary route, you're going to have to say, well, actually, there is no evil in the world. Right. There's just false beliefs that we've been tricked into having by evolution. By yeah. That there's evil in the world. But now, isn't that odd? Here's the atheist who can't believe in God because there's evil in the world. So he rejects God. And then his explanation is there's no evil in the world. So I want them to struggle with that. And that's why what I offered is a simple line of questions that drops the ball into his court. Mm -hmm. And then it's his job to answer for himself using the resources of atheistic materialism, which ain't much for this question to answer the question of the problem of evil. Now, there's more ways I could go. Um, yeah. If you claim that there's a problem of evil, that means there must be some standard that's external to us, an objective standard. Some a moral standard, yeah. Yeah, some moral standard that is being broken that creates what we recognize as evil in the world. So, and, and to make this point, I, I built into a dialogue a question about the Autobahn. I don't know if you've ever dr driven on the Autobahn. Have I have. I, maybe I have, actually, yeah. I okay, think it's, I, a famous, it's a famous yeah, highway in Germany. in Germany, right? And um, the question is, can you break the speed limit on the Autobahn? And the answer, of course, is no. Why not? Because there is no speed limit. Okay, simple principle. Uh, by the way, I've driven on the Autobahn, too, and I, I went really fast <laughs> for a short amount of time. In a rental car, all right, to okay. say, but in any event, it gets scary after a while, you know, but um, uh, the, the, the point there is you can only break a law that exists. If no law exists, then you can't break it. Now, this has ramifications for relativists. Yeah. If a person thinks that morality is an individual matter, hey, Beckett, what's true for you may not be true for me, morally speaking. I have my morality, you have your morality. Okay, that's relativism. That may be the way the world is shaped. But if it is, there is no problem of evil because you can't have broken laws that don't exist. Okay. Right. Now, let's just say, oh, yeah, that's that's a tough bullet to bite. All right. Okay, maybe relativism is false. Maybe there is, there is real objective moral laws. Okay, so there are speed limits in the universe. Right. You got speed limits in your community, right? So where'd those came from, come from? Oh, that, there's the sign right there, 25 miles an hour. No, that's what tells you what the speed limit is. That isn't where the speed limit came from. Where did it come from? Well, it came from the government, right? In order for there to be a real speed limit, there's got to be a governing authority. A lawmaker. That, yeah. There you go. And so you see where we're going here. And so if there is objective morality, there's got to be a lawmaker. Now, it doesn't take a lot of thinking here to realize that Actually, the problem of evil in the world, that there are broken laws in the universe, moral laws, is going to, of necessity, point to a moral lawmaker, which is God. It turns out to be an argument for God, not against right. God, and an argument for against atheism, not for atheism. And this is what I kind of spell out. And so in the conversations, that's the, that's the way uh, I'm going to maneuver with my questions, once again. So with the atheist— Especially for an atheist who co complains about the immorality of the apparent immorality of the God of the Bible. And Richard Dawkins is famous about this. In one writing, he says there's no good nor evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. indifference there's this yeah. materialism, right? <laughs> well, that makes sense for an atheist. But then he goes after the God of the Bible in his book, The God Delusion, and talks about he's homophobic and misogynistic and you know, genocidal and all these other things. Wait, 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 wait. Slow down here, Professor. I thought you said there is no good or evil in your atheistic universe. And here's the key question. Where are you getting your standard by which you are judging God? That's the key question. And what would Where's Dawkins say to that? Uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't talked to him. But I, that is a mic drop moment. I'm just saying. Yeah. Now, they, he could say, well, we evolved it. Okay, so what you're saying now that that probably would what be what he's saying that came through evolution. Okay, so so if I understand your view correctly, and now we're just going back to clarification. 
I'm just repeating his view back to him. If I understand your view correctly, you're saying the God of the Bible allegedly did things that were inconsistent with the way you evolved. Okay, you're smiling now because you realize, well, that's kind of ludicrous. I mean, that's your objection? <laughs> Maybe the ancient Jews evolved differently. They had different. So what is the basis for your complaint? Notice how the complaint now just kind of disappears. It's incoherent. It makes no sense now to complain in that way about the God of the Bible. So right. this is an example of the application of seeing the challenge or the flaw in the view and then using a series of questions to you know, to get a person to see it. I almost said, said mic drop again. And it, 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 the, the goal isn't, I want to qualify this. The goal isn't to, um, to, to have a gotcha moment yeah. for the sake of a gotcha. Okay, these are not gladiator events like most of the conversations about controversial issues are, you know, who can draw the first blood? It's, it's not can... a Twitter feed. It's not a Twitter it's, event. It's right. Yeah. It's like, but we are wanting to get people to think carefully about the claims they're making and about the views they hold, because it may turn out that their views are false. And if the Christian is careful and shrewd, he can maneuver in such a way, he or she can maneuver in such a way as to as to ask the kinds of questions that will help that person to see that there's a problem with their view. And that's what I refer to as a mic drop. It isn't like, oh, aren't I great? No, it's like, do you see? Do you get it? How do you solve that problem? That's what you're faced with in your worldview. And it's not my yeah. view. It's yours. Now what? Yeah. My view doesn't have that problem. I love that. So um, one of my lights just went out, which was weird, but uh, that's okay. I still have light. Uh, <laughs> so modest example of the problem of evil here coming in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't work. So, um, oh, I forgot to no, plug You still it. look that's great. Fine. No worries. Thank you. I didn't notice it. So um, if just to, if maybe one or two more uh, points from the book, yeah. Street smarts. Um, that one of the things that is difficult sometimes to respond for Christians to respond to is, and I love how you deal with this in the book. Do you take the Bible literally? Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Well, if you recall our very first question, and this comes up a lot, and I think this is where Christians founder a little bit. In fact, when I talk to churches about this, I sucker punch them with it. Okay. I just stop in the middle of my talk and I'll say, hey, by the way, do you guys take your, the Bible literally here? Oh, everybody's hands go up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so Jesus is a stick then, right? He's a door. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or the door, you know, and um, the, both in John, the Gospel of John, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. No, he's not a stick. Oh, I thought you take the Bible literally. Well, that depends. Ah, right. Okay, so the problem there is what they should have done when I asked do you take the Bible literally, as they should have asked for clarification. Well, it depends what you mean. Mm -hmm. um, could mean, you know, do you take, no, we don't take it literally. We don't take any writing literally in the sense that every word we use as the literal meaning, of course, because there's all kinds of metaphors and uh, uh, figures of speech that we are very comfortable with, recognize right away, and, um, and don't create a problem for us in terms of uh, understanding the intent of the author. Look, when you read the, the um, sports page, right? You know, the Yankees devoured the Cubs or whatever. Maybe they're in separate leagues. I don't know. Don't hold me to that. But the point is, we see these, yeah, they destroyed them. They stomped on them or blah, blah, blah. Well, this is, you know, uh, exaggerated language, hyperbole to make a literal point. So our point is, and this is the way that I, I will respond, is I try to um, read the Bible with the kind of precision the writer seemed to intend. Or right. a simpler way of putting it is, I read the Bible the natural way, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. like you read anything else. You take it as straightforward, uh, the, the language. And if there's metaphors, then you you, you see them as such. And yeah. generally, that's the case. A parable is a parable. It's a story. And Jesus, after he told the parable, sometimes he explained the parable. Okay, so we get a, a parabolic lesson. And in the then later, we Jesus Jesus will say, sometimes privately, here's what that means. Okay, so he helps us out. He tells us what it means. I think when people raise the question, do you take the Bible literally, they are actually getting at something else. And what they mean is, do you really believe the things in the Bible that I don't like? 
Yeah, that Jesus rose from the dead. The, yes, you know, that's right. You don't take that literally. Yeah. But what other way no, is there to hard. take? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what, what, what other way is there to take it? You know, the, the, this isn't, the genre isn't myth. C.S. Yeah. Lewis wrote myth, or he, and, and he understood myth. It was his specialty, for goodness sake. He said, I, I read, the, I read the, the, the scriptures. They're not myth. That's not their genre. Myth sounds differently, sounds different. So that doesn't mean that all the things in scripture are true. I mean, I'm not making that case right now. I'm just saying you have to read the text for the kind of text it is. And when we read the accounts of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, classically understood as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are reading an historical account. Now, if it's good history or bad history, that's a second question. But it is an historical account of the life of someone to, who lived 2,000 years ago. And we got lots of historical accounts of people who lived back then. And there's a ways that historians assess them to see if they're accurate. And the same thing could be applied to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. It doesn't read like a myth. It reads like history. So let's assess it that way. Yeah, that's good. And um, you will kind of, we'll, we'll probably end on this, um, the abortion, because I think, what is it? You do three chapters on abortion or I can't remember. I, uh, I think I do two. Two, okay. Yeah, the second one is kind of going deeper. The first one is the foundational more logic of the pro-life view and some very basic conversations to get you rolling on the most important issue. Okay. So a couple of questions on abortion. Um, page 226, where is this? Um, you say in the book, I focus on the single decisive defining issue in the debate when making the pro-life case, an approach I call, quote, only one question. Correct. So what is that? Tactic? Okay. When you have complex um, what appear to be complex ethical issues. It's it's really helpful if you can simplify the issue down to the core, all right? And the core question uh, about the legitimacy of abortion is uh, the question, what is it? And uh, the illustration I give, and so here's the questions, and I'll mention to somebody, say if you're standing uh, at the sink or at your computer or something, your back is turned to your children, you hear one of your children come up to you and say, mommy, daddy, can I kill this? So what's the first question you have to have answered before you can answer them? Remember, your back is to them. What is it? And what you is want it, to kill? of course. Yeah. yeah, if it's a spider or a cockroach, smash it if you're, <laughs> it's your little brother. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. We have to have a conversation. So this is a very simple principle that whether it's right or wrong to kill any living thing depends entirely upon what it is. Okay, so you get this principle in place there. Now, I help them to see that. Notice the questions. Common sense. Very common sense. Okay, so now when it comes to abortion... The question is, it does kill something. What is it? Well, people might say, well, nobody knows. I say, well, wait a minute. Is it growing? Well, nobody knows when life begins. Well, that wasn't the question I asked, was it? I asked you not when did life begin, but whether the thing is growing. Well, yeah, it's growing. That's the problem, right? It's growing. Well, it's living. Yeah. So if it, that's the conclusion. So if it's growing, then it's alive. Is that fair? Okay, you get the acknowledgement there. All right, so whatever this is, we know it's growing. Something is growing inside mom. Yeah, but it's mom. It's mom's body. It's just a blob of tissue, right? Okay, well, we're all kind of blobs of tissue after fashion, right? Some right. more blob blobbier than others. But okay, well, right. But do you, you ever see CSI? Sure. So if you have a blob of tissue and you want to know which individual that tissue came from, okay, uh, how would you find out? Oh, they do a DNA test. So if the DNA matches uh, the in the tissue matches some person, in this case, the mom, then that would be her tissue, right? Yeah, of course. In this instance, the blob of tissue that's growing in mom, does that blob of tissue have the same DNA as mom? No. Half her DNA, right? I mean, that's basic. Like eighth graders probably know that. Well, maybe not anymore, but you know, it's basic, <laughs> right? Yeah. So if it doesn't have her DNA, that tissue is not mom, is it? I guess not. Okay, good. So now we have a living thing growing inside mom that is not mom. What is it? I don't know. Well, let's go back to CSI again. If they want to find out what kind of creature some tissue came from, how would they find out? Well, I guess they do another DNA test. Right. So what kind of signature, creature signature, if you will, will the DNA show uh, to be when they examine it. Uh, human? Yeah. 
No duh, right? Mom is producing it in her uterus. And so that thing that she's producing is not her, but it is her offspring, which is going to be a hmm, human. Okay, so yeah, now- it's not a can, cat, it's a human, right? That's right. Yes, it's you know, cats have kittens, dogs have puppies, fish have guppies, and people have yuppies, you know, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> so, so okay. now notice that we're making progress on this obscure thing. What is that in there? Nobody knows. Well, wait a minute. Let's just ask a few questions. And at each step, you're getting an answer to the question, which is a common sense answer that is going to bring us to the conclusion that the thing that is growing inside of mother is that mother's offspring, a separate individual human being. And so now we know what it is. It's an individual innocent human being that is up for destruction and abortion. Now, when you tighten it down like that, that makes answering the question much easier. It isn't that there aren't going to be further objections, but remember, we're just starting out to lay the groundwork, okay? And, uh, and, and then we can kind of go from there because it's not as ambiguous as people make it sound. And there's lots of rhetoric that is used by people to kind of obscure the issue. All we're trying to do is ask a couple of questions. One other thing I want people to notice, and this is inherent to the street smarts approach, which is, by the way, being smart on the street, obviously. The yeah. street is wherever you feel uncomfortable. I'm just in conversations or whatever you don't. Okay, you're not going to venture where you don't feel uncomfortable. Okay, so and here's the other thing I want people to see with what I just role-played, Beckett. And that is that you're actually enlisting the objector, the people who, the person who disagrees with you, as an ally to make your point. So if I were to talk to you, Beckett, and you were a pro-choicer, and I would say, well, it's alive, and it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a separate tissue from the mother, and it's a it, the kind of tissue it is is a human, and therefore it's a separate human being. I'm making statements, and every single time I make a statement, it's an opportunity for you to disagree. So it's alive. No, it's not alive. Nobody knows when life begins. Oh, now I'm off on a rabbit trail. And it's not the mother's body. Of course, it's the mother's body. What's the matter with you? So every time you make a statement, you invite contradiction. But I didn't do that. I asked a question. Right. And so when I asked the question, they gave me the information that I needed to put on the table to take the next step. They're not going to contradict their own statement. They're my ally because I'm asking them fair, simple questions that they're giving me accurate answers to that are stepping stones to my conclusion makes it very difficult for them to push back because they can't gainsay their own statement. They can't deny, they can't disagree with their own statement. And uh, that's what I think is the one of the most powerful features of the the uh, Colombo number three, the street smarts approach. Yeah, and in the the abortion, second, one of the chapters, you, you talk about um, what if a Christian is pro-choice? You know, I... I done a couple episodes on abortion and i to my shock christians that i know were women friends uh even some in my church were offended by that and i'm like wait what <laughs> i thought this was like a no-brainer yeah that's um, right can so, i interject something right now yeah. being offended doesn't count in a discussion about what's true it just doesn't count and yeah. i've had lots of people say it's a very common thing well i'm offended oh, oh well i'm sorry you feel bad Okay, now we know you feel bad. Do you have anything other substantive to respond that your feelings are hurt? Now, that's a coarse way of putting it, of course, but I'm just trying to make the point. Let's please, you know, grow up, be an adult. <laughs> Being offended by somebody else's view does not count in a discussion. All you're doing is focusing on the person and you're calling them some, you know, you're an offensive person. Oh, well, maybe I am, but it doesn't mean what I believe is false. And so, I mean, I get a little short on this one because I'm so bugged by this kind of, oh, I'm offended. Well, look, at if I was offended by your view, would you stop believing it? Would you right. stop talking about it? No, of course not. So this is a one-way street with the offense business. But yeah, this is, it's tragic that a Christian responds that way on any issue as if this is a substantive response. But go ahead. Well, yes. Well, we're going to leave it there, Greg. You are very street smart and you do... <laughs> You you have chapters, as you said, you have chapter a chapter on marriage, sex, and gender, and uh, more chapters that we haven't even touched on. Yeah, and uh, slavery in the Bible, for example, um, and other other key things. 
So guys, please get this book, Street Smarts, because it will really help you kind of understand how to engage the culture, how to engage non-believers mm -hmm. in a in a great way, in a in a way that's going to uh that that's going to bring them out of of their kind of worldview and, and help mm -hmm. them kind of look into their worldview and see, oh, wait a minute, there are holes in my worldview. Yeah. So Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. This when is this book released? It's actually it's coming out for release on September 12th, which is a, a Tuesday. And if they go to the website, very simple, Street Smarts the Book. Okay. No spaces, streetsmartsthebook.com. Uh, they'll be able to order it to receive it. It'll be shipped out on the 12th. But if you go to that website, as opposed to directly to Amazon, which you can, um, you're going to be able to get some bonuses. So if you order it there um, through streetsmartsthebook.com, you can get a bunch of other stuff as part of your pre-order bonus. So that's what I recommend. Great. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you for being on. It's so good to see you again. Yeah. And, uh, so, well, uh, hopefully we'll cross paths soon again. I hope so too. Thank you, Beckett. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Life Audio presents Bridges with Monica Schmelter. That we have an enduring hope that can't be taken away when we are in Christ. And to know that we have that, right? and eternal salvation, because this world can be so busy and so dark that we can forget that, right? Because right? sometimes I get caught in the trappings of what's going on in my life this moment, and while I have to recognize that, that's not it. Continue listening on lifeaudio.com or wherever you find your podcast.